What's up, Team Egos, and welcome to Optimized, the show helping you optimize your mind, body, and spirit through tea. My name is Vince Lapalusa, and I am your host and guide on this tea journey. Specifically, how we are going to optimize our minds, bodies, and spirits with tea is by digging into four topics and how tea can influence them. Those four are education, mindfulness practices, movement, and community. So tune in to learn how you can optimize your life today. Today, I had the honor of talking with Dr. Maya Sheetreet. Dr. Maya is a conventionally trained pediatric neurologist, an herbalist, and the author of The Dirt Cure. Our conversation digs primarily into her book, The Dirt Cure. We answer questions like, what is health? Why is it important for us to be outside? Should we be afraid of getting dirty? Is it important to source or grow organic teas and herbs? And bringing it together, should we really be enjoying our next cup of tea outside? Spoiler alert, you should. So take off your shoes, grab some tea, step outside, relax, and enjoy this episode of Optimized. Dr. Maya, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. So happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm super excited for this. So let's dig right into it. We're just going to dive in head first. Um, one of the big things that I've been doing a little bit of research with your work and everything you do, like especially with the dirt cure, which I think is going to be the predominant conversation piece of this of this talk, is frankly just understanding what the heck health is. And one of the first questions that I have is just defining what health is for just a person. Because I've heard it before as described as like the absence of disease. But is that really the truth? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny, you know, I've given a lot of talks to, you know, big rooms full of doctors and healthcare practitioners. And, you know, I'll say what what is health? And really commonly, the answer is absence of disease. But I think, you know, we really are starting to see, especially over these past few years, that that's actually not the case. Someone can walk around looking okay, but actually some inevitable challenge comes and that can be, you know, can be an infection, right? Or it can be um, a stressful event in life, or it can be any number of things. And what ends up happening is you really kind of get your metal tested, so to speak, right? And so mm. these challenges, whatever they might be, toxic, you know, any biological kind of challenge, any emotional challenge, um, those, for some people, you know, are like almost nothing, right? Just a blip. For some people, it kind of knocks them off course a little bit. For some people, it really knocks them off the horse, but they mm. can get back on eventually. And some people are just knocked off the horse and they they can't get back on, right? Yeah. And we're seeing that with things like, you know, long COVID and with like, you know, things like chronic Lyme, et cetera, et cetera, right? These, these kinds of uh, conditions that look, um, you know, chronic. And mm. it was just from some acute insult. So for me, what the definition of health is, and I mean, we could say many, many things, but <laughs> one of them is the ability to bounce back, right? The mm. ability to have real resilience, to have reserve so that, whatever comes your way, you're able to bounce back and get right back on the horse and keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important because especially for any athletes that are like listening, that resilience is so 
vital because let's say you get COVID, you quarantine, you do your quarantine, your thing, you come, are you able to bounce right back and get back into whatever sport you're doing? Or is it going to detriment you for who knows, weeks, months, whatever, whatever that might be. So that's, that's super important. And, and I think I like that. <laughs> I like it basically. Um, <clears throat> so you mentioned that resilience and how does the chronic diseases, like how do chronic diseases like relate to resilience in that sense? So it sort of goes back to that idea of getting knocked off the horse. So yeah you know, something happens and, you know, biologically inside of our bodies, whatever that trauma is. And for, for example, for an athlete or for anyone, it could be a physical trauma, right? Like I've seen lots Mm -hmm. of people who have had head trauma, right? Because they got a concussion, they collide or the, you know, heading a soccer ball or, you know, whatever kind of thing that might happen. And, you know, so your, your cells in those moments go into what we call cell danger mode. Cell danger mode is, a biological response, an important biological response that we've evolved to have to protect us in, you know, moments of stress or trauma. Mm-hmm. And so, or even like, if you think of the example of, I don't know, strep throat, right? Like there's this period of time where all of your resources are not really working towards you functioning optimally. Mm-hmm. They're working towards getting you out of this difficult situation, Right. So during those periods, you might feel foggy, you might feel fatigued, right? Like, you know, you've Mm -hmm. got your strep throat, you're not feeling quite yourself. But then hopefully, cell danger response goes back to, you know, normal, optimal function, you feel you get back to yourself, whether it's five days later, two weeks later, etc. You know, after concussion might be six weeks later, just all depends. Um, And then you're kind of back to yourself doing your thing. If cell Mm -hmm. danger mode persists, Okay, abnormally, that's what what that's what causes chronic illness, whether it's, you know, a TBI, whether it's an infection that persists, whether it's, you know, diabetes or um, eczema or any of these things, it's a form of your cells being stuck in cell danger. Mm, Interesting. Okay. And so what are like some of the major challenges that are that you think from your perspective, us as a society are kind of facing right now that are leading to these stressors that are constantly keeping us in this state? Um, Well, I would say about the stressors. I mean, I think we've always had stressors of all different kinds. Yeah. And that's since the beginning of time. It's normal, actually, I would say. And we have just to, you know, take a very short related detour you know, there's this concept of hormesis, which actually athletes know a lot mm-hmm. about, right? Hormesis is these small stressors, something that would be in larger amount, uh, like maybe even deadly, right? Mm-hmm. In tiny amounts makes us function more optimally. So hormesis is like um, getting sunshine would be a great example of that because, you know, a little sunshine is really important. Too much sunshine, you know, you get a sunburn, it can cause skin cancer, it can cause sun poisoning, etc. Exercise is actually another form of hormesis. If you do some exercise every day, that's great. It actually, you know, makes your cells function at a better level. If you do, let's say, run a marathon every other day for six months, that's going to destroy your body, right? Well, yeah. for most people. Um, <laughs> I won't say everybody, but probably right. most people. So, um, So stressors are actually important. Stressors are actually an important part of our cells 
uh, kind of reminders for ourselves to step the heck up and like Mm -hmm. do what they need to do even better. So it's not so much the stressors that we get that kind of come our way, although we do have more just because of toxic exposures and so on, but it's like a lot more about our reserve. So for example, what are we eating? Right. Mm. What are, you know, is it nutrient dense? Is it super processed food? Um, Are we getting, you know, enough calories, enough of the right kinds of calories, things like that sleep? What about sleep? What about time in nature, you know, where we're actually able to get um, really diverse organisms coming into our microbiome, which like decides a lot of things that are really important for our brains, and our immune systems and our mitochondria and all of these things. So a lot of this really has to do with, again, going back to that idea of what is, what is health, what is disease, is like how, how um, kind of full are your coffers? Like how much <laughs> reserve do you have in the way that you spend your time and kind of the life that you live so that when those inevitable challenges do come your way, you're going to be resilient through them. You know, they're going to be the kind of challenges that make you stronger rather than knock you down. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's such a key note on the stress because stress gets such a negative connotation nowadays. Cause I think it's, as you're mentioning the chronic stress, it's the stress that we're experiencing over time mm-hmm. that, and it could be the stresses from like traumas, but there's stress is also lifting weights. It's also putting, getting in a sauna, getting in an ice bath, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And some of the herbs and teas that, that I work with, they create micro hormetic stresses in our bodies that then lead to a stronger immune system can help with all that, all that stuff. So super fascinating. Um, do you have anything else to add on that? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I just think it's important, you know, it's absolutely true. Chronic stress and trauma and all of those things really do take a toll on us Mm -hmm. over time. We do know that that's the case that we actually hold those, chronic stresses and, and especially those kinds of stressors that become trauma, right? And Mm. trauma is not necessarily the event itself. It's how our bodies experience the event and how we hold on to that event. That's really what the trauma is. Even though we could say, oh, this happened or that happened, you know, and it sounds like, yeah, that was a trauma. It's actually how you're holding it in your body. And because we hold it in our body, that is like a chronic stress that we could hold forever. You know, even if we're like, oh, no, 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 I'm over that. Sometimes we're really not. Sometimes it still changes actually like the way our brain is functioning. I mean, there are actually many studies that show um, that people who had, for example, adverse childhood events, which are called Mm -hmm. ACEs, um, you know, are... And those are things like experiencing divorce, um, abandonment, or someone being incarcerated or having addiction in your family or abuse, mm. you know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, like things that actually happen in a lot of families, though, yeah. you know, something in that array of things, um, those kinds of events actually change the way our brains are wired. Mm. And it is something that can be altered in adulthood, but we do have to pay attention to those things. My point about it, though, is that there's nothing new about stress. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's something we as humans have had to deal with since the very, very beginning of time. And so I think what's really, really changed more so, even though there are, of course, new stressors um, and some that are very big, it's really how well equipped are we to deal with the kinds mm. of stressors that may come our way? 
Yeah. And so I feel like the, the challenge that we're experiencing is that the vast majority of us are not able to be resilient against those stressors. Correct. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Because, because of the kinds of life, the, the life that we live, which yeah. can be as simple as, you know, have living in, you know, having a village, right? Like having a community yeah. where we are all supporting one another. And I think that's part of why, you know, we all try to find whether it's a sports team, whether it's, you know, mm. whatever kind of group is your group, you want to find those people because it's sort of like we have to build our own villages now. And it's not quite yeah. the same as, you know, the way it was maybe, you know, 500 or a thousand years ago, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let's, let's dig into, into the, the dirt cure. I mean, really like, like your, what your book's called the dirt cure. Let's talk about what some of the things that we, we should be doing or need to get back to, I should say, in order to be more resilient and be able to accommodate these stressors in life. So you call it the dirt cure and there are three pillars to it, correct? Yes. Can you dig in or tell us, I guess, first, what are those three pillars? So, you know, the way that I look at it and people will say, you know, why is your book called the dirt cure? You know, some people don't like the word dirt, especially outside of the United States. Dirt is like, you know, in the UK, for example, is like, you know, really not a nice word. Um, and it's really about, I didn't call it like the soil cure or something like that for a reason, because dirt kind of um, can represent many things. So mm-hmm. for me, the three pillars are, you know, being exposed to germs and microbes, eating fresh food from healthy soil and getting out into nature. And, you know, that kind of image of like, you know, when you come home dirty at the end of the day as like a kid, you know, just like covered in dirt, you're probably living a pretty healthy life as a kid, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of the thing that we have to reconnect to. And I, you know, in my book, go into the science of why each of those pillars are are tremendously important and how I've applied that in my work and my own son who was ill um, and in my practice with, you know, really complicated neurologic and chronically ill um, patients from around the world and, you know, why I think it's important, you know, for yeah. all of us. Yeah. Beautiful. So can we dig into just a little bit of each one of those? So starting obviously just with those germs and microbes, can you talk a little bit about the science that's backing what you, and I guess, first off, what you mean by the the germs and microbes, and then a little bit of the science as to like how it can help build this resilience that we're talking about. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people, especially now, you know, we're kind of in a time where people feel more germ phobic again, which is <laughs> mm-hmm. a, a thing for a very long time. And we were making some headway and then, you know, COVID happened and suddenly, you know, the hand sanitizer and the bleach and all the things were, you know, the masks and the gloves and whatever were all pulled out again. Yeah. But, you know, the idea of, so people will ask me, you know, what's the difference between a germ, a germ and a microbe? I know microbes are good, but germs aren't. So there's no difference, right? Germs are just a pejorative term for microbe. And if we go back and look at, you know, Louis Pasteur, who the the father of pasteurization, who was actually the one who kind of at least is famously known for uh, germ theory, you know, um, he at that time, you know, said, hey, there are these microscopic beings that are kind of laying in wait all around us, ready to invade our bodies, grow out of control and kill us, you know, make us sick or even kill us. Hmm. And that was germ theory. And at that time, everyone was like, Oh, no, there's these invisible things coming to get us. We're so disempowered here. And basically, they started to 
stop eating things like yogurt and mm. sourdough bread because they were like, quote unquote, contaminated, right? And, um, you know, at the same time, there was this other competing theory, and it was by Claude Bernard. It was called the terrain theory. And they were actually kind of frenemies. They were colleagues and, yeah. you know, um, and he said terrain theory, well, we're mostly already exposed to and even have within our bodies all different kinds of microscopic organisms. And really what determines if uh, those microbes are good or bad has to do with the terrain, right? It's, it has to do with the person who, and if they're in balance. And of course, you know, famously Louis Pasteur on his deathbed, we never know if this is really true or not, but it is yeah. a good story that's been widely spread. Um, you know, he said, Bernard was right. Um, it's not the, it's not the microbe, it's the terrain. It sounds better in French. They were French, but, um, <laughs> basically, you know, he, in the end kind of supposedly capitulated, but the point is that really we vilified germs when in fact, it turns out that we have this microbiome that's now, you know, this many years in, when I first started doing the research, it wasn't like all over the cover of the New York times and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. We had to like look really deep into the scientific literature to find this kind of information. But we have three to five pounds. If we're lucky, we have three to five pounds of organisms that live in and on our body, in our guts, in our mouths, in our ears, on our skin, you know, in our rectum, like all the places, okay, we are filled with and think these are microscopic organisms. So if you have three to five pounds of them, there's like kind of more of them than there are of you in terms of even cells in the body. We have more microbe than we have human cells. Yes. That's, that's insane. That's it. For someone out there who's probably listening, they're probably like, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> right. But see, the irony but, is that these are our friends, so, yeah, exactly. you know, and I'll tell you how. So for one thing, they actually make vitamins that we need. So vitamin K, mm. for example, which we need vitamin B12 and so on is their waste products. They actually um, create, they actually make neurotransmitters that we need, again, things like serotonin and, you know, dopamine and things like that yeah. are being produced by these microbes. They help us break down and digest our food. They help us absorb the food. They protect the gut lining when you have a microbiome that is, you know, healthy and diverse. They communicate with your immune cells and let them know everything's like copacetic and the gut mm -hmm. and, um, and actually communicate with your mitochondria directly. So there's this constant communication between these many, many, many organisms living in and on your body and your cells, literally down to your mitochondria, the, you know, engine of the cell. And for any mm -hmm. athlete, for sure, you know, you want healthy mitochondria that are in communication with your microbiome. The more communication that's happening in your body, the healthier and more resilient and um, kind of more capable your cells and your, therefore your body will be. So having diverse microbes has actually been shown to also even like amplify your brain power. So I'm a neurologist and, yeah. you know, the, we want very diverse organisms, so many kinds that no one organism can grow out of control. That's the key. Mm -hmm. And those will communicate with your nervous system. So now we know it's important for brain development. It's important for um, focus, attention, um, preventing, preventing all kinds of neurodegenerative diseases. Like if you are an intelligent person, your microbiome is helping you out, you know, in a big way yeah. to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, do you work with or do you ever recommend any specific herbs or teas to help support the gut microbiome? 
Well, yeah, I mean, so the more diverse your diet, including, you know, all different kinds of herbs and plants, the the healthier your gut microbiome will be. Because if you eat very few things, um, I recently did like a very short bout of um, the carnivore diet, I was sort of experimenting okay. with removing oxalates from my diet. Oxalates are found in a lot of kinds of vegetables, mm-hmm. um, sadly, <laughs> and things like bone broth, things that I love. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was having this kind of chronic, uh, you know, injury from running. So I was like, okay, mm. trying this carnivore diet, and I could feel my whole microbiome kind of going bananas, right? Like, what do I do? You know, and so a lot <laughs> yeah. of people when they're having that, I think Joe Rogan actually tried it had diarrhea for months, like, <laughs> yeah, so it messes that. with you, right? When you're eating one kind of food, your gut microbiome actually wants you to have lots of different kinds of foods. So teas and herbs are actually phenomenal for that, because they're very complex. Um, mm-hmm. And so and you can have a different tea, you know, when you start your day with your, you know, your bamate or your you know, guayusa tea or your green tea. And then, you know, over the course of the day, you might have some dandelion, uh, dandelion root tea that will support liver detox and will support, um, you know, it's great for prebiotics. So you get some like really good food for those, um, you know, beneficial microbes. And then you might in the evening want to have a little bit of skullcap tea or a little bit of chamomile tea, that's going to help you kind of wind down. And like all of those are you know, thousands upon thousands of compounds in each of those teas, um, let alone, you know, the kinds of herbs you might want to also incorporate. And of course, it really depends. It's not so much. I mean, there are things to do to protect the gut. Mm-hmm. But even things like <laughs> foods, I mean, garlic, and onions, and things like that are really, really phenomenal to actually feed the the microbiome. Um, I love burdock as well for that Mm. It's another really great prebiotic. So that's just kind of nourishing all of those organisms so they can stay nice and diverse and take care of you because that's really what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So let's jump to the the second of the three pillars, Um, the fresh food. And I put in parentheses and tea um, for the, from healthy soil. So can you explain that a little bit? So absolutely. I think, you know, what a lot of us don't think about, we think about what we're eating, but we don't really think about where it's coming from. So, um, you know, part of the research I did for my book had to do with a lot of, you know, my own growing of food and looking into um, where food comes from, what's happening to it. You know, if we go out to, let's say, a restaurant and we're eating, you know, we could say, oh, this is something healthy, but we don't actually know, number one, like oftentimes we don't know the oil it's cooked in. So, you know, in the US, at least 9.9 out of 10 times, it's going to be either soybean oil or corn oil, that's going to be genetically modified. And we have, you know, as much as there are corporations that really, really don't want that kind of information to be out there. um, There's actually data about things like glyphosate, and how that affects our health and glyphosate is in Roundup and Roundup is used on a lot of GMO foods. Um, and there's a lot of, and I go into this in my book in a lot of depth and with a lot of references for people who, you know, want to see where I'm getting these, um, ideas. So lots of, you know, the book is very accessible, but the back has over 700 references just in case you want to (laughs) like verify anything. I'm like that. So, um, and I like to verify everything. So, um, but you know, so like just knowing, you know, what is the oil that your food's being cooked in? Is it seed oil? Is it soy oil? Is it? Um, you know, pesticide filled or, or at least laced. Um, also, like even just knowing 
what kind of soil your food was grown. And actually that determines, I mean, we don't think about it, right? But the mo- the healthiest and most nutrient dense vegetable or herb you could have would be wild grown. And no. that's been looked at quite a lot. When I say healthiest, so if something is treated with pesticides, it as, that's a vegetable, for example, and there are studies that show this, and I look at them in my book, mm. um, that might have a little more protein. So a tiny bit more protein in your broccoli, let's say, um, not something so measurable that you're going to like, you know, really, you know, yeah. it's not like instead of your protein shake, I guess. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but if you eat something wild, let's say there's wild broccoli, you know, you find it's sort of like, you know, was a kind of renegade that grew on its own somewhere, it's going to actually be much, much, much higher in uh, phytonutrients. And the phytonutrients mm. are the things that, you know, make your cranberries red and make your grapes purple and, you know, things like that. And that's actually, they're kind of mini poisons, actually, in a way, going back mm. to that idea of hormesis. That's mm. part of what makes vegetables actually good for us, um, is those little tiny hormetic stressors that we get along with all the nutrients. So if you have depleted soil that where, you know, as most farmland in this country is growing, you know, mass produced broccoli or whatever, um, that soil is depleted. That means actually your broccoli is going to have less nutrients because your plants actually feed on soil, soil, water, sun, you know? Um, And so a lot of what this fresh food from healthy soil has to do with is you know, thinking of growing food when you can, going to farmer's markets, um, joining CSAs, or just doing as much kind of fresh and direct food that you can, even though that might in the beginning feel a little more challenging to do. Um, But once you find those, and we're really starting to see with supply chain issues, you know, keeping your keeping your local um, sources of food open, I raise chickens, I live in New York City, not in the concrete jungle part. Like I have a little green corner. I have 15 chickens. Um, In fact, before I got on here, I was just gathering their like rainbow eggs. They're very, very, you know, they all lay there like pink and brown and blue and white. And so um, it's amazing, right? And those eggs, if I open one of those eggs, it's like fluorescent, you know, orange, yellow. It looks totally different from the kind of eggs you get in the supermarket. And it is. So there are all kinds of you know, omegas and all different kinds of um, like vitamin D and just all these things that, you know, you go to the grocery store and pick up a dozen eggs. An egg is, you know, an egg is not an egg is not an egg. It depends mm-hmm. on the chicken who laid the egg. That's same for true with the meat, same for true with, you know, any of these things that we're, we're eating. And all of that is kind of coming from our soil. And are they getting right. exposed to nature? Are they out in the sun? Are they getting that vitamin D? That, in fact, really does affect the quality of the eggs and the meat and the, and the vegetables and the fruit and everything that yeah. we're eating. Yeah. So how does this relate to the organic piece? Like, obviously it sounds, I mean, organic to me is as close to the foraging that you're kind of talking about. Is that correct? So, you know, probably to be really, really honest, you know, if we would say there's conventional, then there's organic, then there's biodynamic. Biodynamic is probably even quite a bit stricter. And and there are actually the Demeter certification, which you Mm. can find. And even stuff in your grocery store is even probably better than organic technically, because there are certain pesticides you can use with organic. Um, Mm. But it's definitely far and away better than conventional. And there's no question about that. And then growing your own is obviously amazing. I mean, not all of us can do that. Um, But yeah, so the difference, though, is with organic is just 
Um, number one, you're not going to have anywhere like the same uh, kinds of exposures that you would be having um, if you're eating conventional, uh, let's say, fruits. For example, strawberries, uh, which I will only eat organic, um, mm -hmm. actually, because strawberries are grown with over 200 different pesticides over the course of their lifetime. Wow. Um, and if you've ever crazy. grown your own strawberries, you get it because it's like, it's hard. It's hard to grow your own strawberries, <laughs> yeah. especially in fields. They're actually, strawberries originally grew in like woods, um, wild yeah, strawberries. Yeah. So, um, no, sorry, go. Yeah. So anyway, and then, you know, so getting those organic, for example, is like, it's a big difference because you are, and we do know that people are exposed to traces of pesticides when they, you know, are hanging out on grass where pesticides have been sprayed, when they're eating foods that contain pesticides. I mean, I always talk also with athletes, not just about, you know, where are you playing your sports? Are you on turf? Because turf has a lot of issues too. Um, getting back to that idea of healthy soil, right? Um, but also, you know, are the fields being sprayed? And, you know, for example, if you're out there playing golf, just as, you know, one sport, I mean, those are heavily, heavily yeah. sprayed areas. So, just like really thinking about your exposures because, you know, just why does this even all matter is it affects every cell in your body, especially through mitochondria. Mitochondria are these very resilient kind of entities in our cells that make all that energy, produce all that energy. They're also sentinels. So they're sampling the environment all the time to decide if you're in danger and if the cell should live or die, just something mm. called apoptosis. So if there's a like high toxin level you know, for example, it actually damages the mitochondria. They're kind of very, very sensitive um, to all those kinds of exposures. And that's why we know people, especially children who are exposed to pesticides have lower IQs. That's been shown, you know, motor skills are less. And I, I have to think that's something that affects us all through life. Um, you know, we know that, for example, some people have a tendency to develop Parkinson's disease and some people don't. Um, but if you do have that tendency, pesticides are kind of like pulling the trigger. So it's, it's genetics and pesticides together that seem to be what start those kinds of processes. So what it comes down to is like the less you're exposed to over your lifetime, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard with organic too, because if it's truly organic and not being used with any of those pesticides that you said possibly can be organic, like when little pests nibble at a plant, it actually creates more of these phytonutrients. Is that correct? Well, so absolutely. Cause plants aren't there for us to eat them, you know, right. even though we like to think that yeah. you know, they're actually like very complex. They're amazing. Plants are very intelligent. Um, and there's lots of, you know, data coming out about that now and even books about it, but plants actually, you know, those phytonutrients are their immune system and their defense system and they're chemists and they're constantly like deciding what do I need to do based on the pest that's uh, that's here and they communicate with also their neighbors to say oh i was just you know bitten by you know a bug or you know an animal and what chemicals do we now need to release to poison them or make you know do these things that are going to kind of repel um yeah. these pests and so on so that is what phytonutrients are and those phytonutrients are these kind of mini poisons as i said before that create these hormetic stressors that make us much healthier ultimately so Yes, you kind of do want your fruits and vegetables to be, and the plants, you know, to be a little stressed. Um, in the same way that we need these, these hormetic stresses, uh, so too the, do the plants need those hormetic stressors. And that makes 
the food more nutrient dense for us. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. So that the last uh, of the pillars of the three pillars is time and nature, which pretty self-explanatory, but please, I'd love for you to dig into that. Yeah, absolutely. I, the time and nature one, it does feel self-explanatory. Um, and people, you know, will get a lot of ideas in their head about it. And so time and nature can be so many things. Um, it can be playing sports. I mean, for me, I go trail running, you know, many times a week. And, you know, so I'm out in the woods, actually, and I'm getting, you know, so just like, to give a, a quick sort of rundown of the kinds of things that like, just from what we call forest bathing, spending beautiful time in the forest, mm -hmm. there's actually it's a practice in Asia called Shinrin Yoku. And so um, it's actually been studied, it's prescribed, in fact, to people. Um, and it's funny, because I remember talking to this person from Japan, you know, when my book came out and saying, Oh, yes, like Shinrin Yoku, and she looked at me like, uh, yeah, like we all do that. Why are you doing that? That's a thing about it, right? But here in this country, like we really don't necessarily do that, um, many of us. And so um, the kind of benefits that have been shown with Shinrin Yoku are things like better focus, better executive function, better sleep, less stress, um, subjective feelings of happiness, lower cortisol levels, uh, higher anti-cancer proteins. So you're actually like fighting cancer just by being out in nature. Um, and actually higher natural killer cells, natural killer cells sound bad, but actually there are non-specific immune systems. So any kind of, you know, organism that comes your way that you don't want, you want your natural killer cells to be like on, um, or even for cancer, right? So we're always making some amount of cancer cells in our body, hopefully not too many. And then our natural killer cells come and like knock those out. So being in nature, you're fighting cancer, you're boosting your immune system. You're going to sleep better. You're going to feel happier. You're going to focus better. Um, and that's just, you know, a beautiful walk in the woods every day or every few days. Um, sunshine, too. We now know we thought sunshine was this bad guy. It's been really villainized, uh, not just good for vitamin D, but for the entire spectrum of light. It affects your melatonin levels. It affects your testosterone levels. It affects, you know, so your sexual health is related to getting enough sun. Your visual health is related to getting enough sun. We know that actually... Kids who get full spectrum light are more like for more than three hours a day every day are more likely to have perfect vision, no matter what their genetics are. Mm -hmm. So we wow. have like a lot of reasons to be out and about in nature, not to mention we want these diverse microbiomes. And how do we get it? How have we always gotten it? Not just through food, not just through fermented things like sauerkraut or yogurt or things like that, but actually by, you know, getting out in the dirt, you know, picking carrots or you know, rolling in the grass or sitting outside or whatever the things that we're doing. Yeah. yeah I've learned a lot of this um, from Dr. Andrew Huberman's work as well, who I'm sure you're aware of being a neurologist as well, but he's like the idea of getting up in the morning and like within the first 15 minutes going and viewing the sunlight and even like indirectly, it's, it's so much easier. Like I'm in Minnesota now. And so now the weather's finally turning and so now it's like my morning routine. I can go outside and just jump rope for 15 minutes in the morning and, and get that. Whereas like in the winter, it's it's very challenging. Also, the sun doesn't like to wake up until like 10 a.m. sometimes in the winter. <laughs> right. And that's why, you know, you might want to have like a red light, right? You mm -hmm. do that kind of stuff in your home. But but even through the winter, it's and as you know, right, probably as well as, or better than anyone, you're getting that cold hormesis. You're getting mm -hmm. out and you're still getting that little bit of natural light. It's so important for mood, so important for, you know, all of the things. And yeah, I mean, the Human Podcast is fun because, you know, he sort of like 
widely disseminating some of this stuff that we, you know, we've known for a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So mental note, enjoy my tea outside and enjoy anyone listening, enjoy your tea and athletics outside. <laughs> so that's good to know. So a few specific things that I've heard you talk about um, that I want to ask a little bit about more or a little bit more in detail. Um, one I have here is about bitters and why bitters are important. And I guess, first off, can you define what bitters are and then tell us why they're important? So bitters are just essentially any bitter tasting, um, either plant or plant tonic. An example of a bitter actually is coffee. That is Mm. a bitter plant tonic. Mm. Um, Another bitter is actually beer because of hops. So um, not that I am necessarily saying drink a lot of either of those things, although I know people like to. But I do think that part of the reason that we love them is not just because of, let's say, the alcohol or the caffeine or what we always think of as, you know, oh, I need my coffee or whatever, but it's actually partly because of the bitters and the bitters actually do all these things in our body. So, um, you know, we can also find bitters just to say, you know, dark chocolate is a bitter, um, chamomile tea is a gentle bitter, um, Mm -hmm. orange peel, right? So the zest of like the orange, and that's actually part of why probably it was always used with sweets is there would be, or in teas, right? But especially like with sweet things, it actually um, kind of offsets the effects of sugar. Um, Mm. So bitters are incredible. We think of taste receptors as only being in our mouth, but they go through our entire digestive tract. Um, So we have them throughout our esophagus, stomach, intestines, um, actually on our pancreas, our liver, in our brain, breast, testicles, all of the places Mm. have... Um, bitter receptors. And the re- and what they do is they um, increase stomach acid, which is actually a good thing, contrary to what most people think, because it helps you uh, as you're part of your immune system for one thing, and also helps you digest proteins, which is a mm-hmm. really big deal. Um, it also increases gut motility so that you're less likely to have like bloating, belching, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it also actually boosts liver detoxification, um, increases insulin, um, release and balances blood sugar levels, um, increases bile release. Bile helps you absorb fats and also ushers toxins out of the body. So if you think of all of those things, why do bitters do all of that? Well, most poisons are bitter. So mm. it actually is our body's way of getting rid of poisons. But actually, um, again, going back to the little things that are in plants, you know, those bitter compounds actually help our health in really, really big and important ways. So Um, making sure that you're incorporating some of those things. Even if you think about like an alcoholic beverage, like a cocktail, a lot of times they have bitters in them, like these aperitifs, Mm. right? People would drink them before their meal and then um, it would actually help their digestion uh, Mm. for the meal itself. Yeah, fascinating. And do you know, just based on you're saying that the the bitter flavor, is yerba mate a bitter? You know, I don't know. I don't think of your, some teas do have bitter components to them. I can't think in my mind right now about if your yeah. mate is actually that bitter. Like I would go more for like greens or like a dandelion okay. root tea, for example, definitely, yeah. um, or dandelion leaf tea. But any of those are going to be more bitter and more effectively bitter. And there are a lot of bitter tonics. So tea is absolutely like, you know, and I love dandelion tea, as you can hear, because I have <laughs> mentioned it already several times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, just also there are bitter 
tonics. So you can actually go and buy like bitters from a lot of different companies that are already made and you just squirt them in your mouth before you eat. Mm. And you know, you get your herbal bitters. Fascinating. Awesome. So one of the last things I wanted to touch on um, was the use of honey and as a sweetener, maybe in comparison to other traditional sweeteners like a cane sugar or I can't even think like, I guess, artificial sweeteners as well. Um, So is there an inherent benefit to honey or maybe a detriment to honey that um, we should be aware of? Yeah, this is a a huge question and I'm going to summarize it as much as possible. (laughs) Basically, you know, there are studies that have been done looking at the, um, you know, ORAC, we call it, of sweeteners. So it's actually how many antioxidants, in a sense, are in your sweeteners. So if you're eating mm-hmm. processed white sugar, you're kind of at nil in that category, right? Yeah. Whereas something like blackstrap molasses or honey or um, dark maple syrup, just for mm-hmm. instance, even evaporated cane juice are all going to be a little higher uh, or much higher. So in the case of blackstrap molasses, most people don't know Blackstrap molasses is a waste product from making pure white sugar. It's the rest of the sugar cane. And um, it has a really strong flavor, but it actually has a higher ORAC value than even like a serving of blueberries. Wow. We think of blueberries as being pretty high in antioxidants. Blackstrap molasses is even better. And it has a lot of other benefits to it. Um, So I like those, like things like blackstrap molasses or honey is another one that I think if you're getting real the full honey, meaning what you get in the little bear on the shelf in the supermarket is often actually very, very processed and doesn't have a lot of the benefits of, Mm. you know, your usual honey. It's like often imported from China and there's not a lot of regulations around that. And I go into the details quite a bit in my book, but in terms of like, if you're getting honey, you know, from your farmer's market or, you know, because it's like that, you know, nice kind of honey Mm -hmm. certified, whatever, then that honey is going to have Uh, a lot of antioxidants in it. It might even have some bee pollen in it, you know, which actually Mm. will help balance your immune system. And very often honey actually can lower blood sugar in many cases. It was, it's actually being studied as a treatment for diabetes. Wow. That's a, that's really fascinating. Um, So have you heard of anything in regards to the heating of honey? Cause I know a lot of people add honey to tea, which is why I brought it up. Um, I've heard that there could be like a negative to heating up honey. Do you know anything about that? So, you know, you want to basically, if you're drinking tea and, you know, your tea is getting like kind of cool enough for you to drink and you add honey to it, you're probably going to be just fine. If you're boiling the honey, you know, yes, it is probably, and it's raw honey that's not already processed. Yeah. Because um, a lot of the honey, like I said, that you're getting is. But if it's raw honey, um, you know, it might change some of the um, benefits slightly, but all in all, you're still going to be getting a lot of benefit. Mm. Um, So I would just say, you know, if you're really, really, really heating the honey, it is going to change some things and maybe not quite as beneficial, but I wouldn't say, you know, well then just don't even bother with the honey. It's still going to have a lot of those benefits. Awesome. Well, that's good to know. Um, Well, Dr. Maya, I, I appreciate this. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on or add? to this conversation? No, I mean, you know, obviously (laughs) there are always things I can continue to share, but I think, you know, we covered a lot of the, 
you know, really important things. And I think for, you know, one of them is just like really getting outside, getting to know the plants around you, you know, getting to know the, I love foraging. So foraging for mushrooms or like, you know, I have a recipe on my website that I love um, at drmaya.com for making dandelion fritters. So mm. you take the blossom of the dandelion, which uh, believe it or not, is delicious. And you can make it gluten-free, even dairy-free, really, really easy um, sauteed uh, little kind of mini breaded dandelion fritters. And like we all in my house pound those. So <laughs> I highly recommend getting really yeah, intimate yeah. with plants and um, come find that recipe on my website if you want. And um, yeah, just like start to make friends with nature around you. Yeah, definitely. And what kind of services do you provide for people if they're interested in working with you? Or anything like that? Um, yeah. So I have a lot of great classes, herbal, herbal intensives. So if you want to learn about those things, I work with people. I do coaching. I do, um, I do actually microdosing coaching. I do mm. uh, like physical, emotional, spiritual coaching. So to kind of move through um, all the ways that we can kind of uh, boost our sleep, our energy, and kind of get really optimized. Um through a lot of these different kind of elements of, of nature. Yeah. And we didn't even touch on the psychedelic tea. So that's, a, <laughs> that's maybe a different podcast, but Dr. Maya, I really appreciate this. Everyone check her out on her website and all of that will be included in the show notes. So Dr. Maya, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you're still listening, there's probably a good chance that you got some value out of today's episode. I am on a mission of helping 1 million people optimize their minds, bodies, and spirits with tea, and I need your help. If you can leave a five-star rating and review, this will help spread the word and show more people this show. I thank you for your help and support, and I look forward to seeing you soon.